This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Well, Gord nailed it. We are today talking for our hot question of the day about fireworks. You may have heard in the news, Vancouver City Councilor Pete Fry is proposing a motion. He's going to bring it forward to City Council next week to ban the sale of fireworks unless they are being used for large public events. So very simple today. We want to know. Do you support this or not? Do you go, yeah, they're annoying. Uh, I know for a lot of people, it has everything to do with their pets and how their pets react, uh, particularly to the noise of fireworks. Or do you say, no, I don't support this because they spark joy. I love fireworks. Or it's only one night of the year, whatever the case may be. So yes or no, do you support this? Check out our hot question of the day. You can go online to at CKNW, which is on Twitter, or you go to at SimiSarah980, also on Twitter. Let us know. Cast your vote there. And you can email me as well, me at cknw.com. Definitely going to be talking more about this. Pete Fry is coming on the show just after 11 o'clock today to delve a little deeper into this. What prompted this? What kind of cost are we talking about to the city here? Uh, we just heard in the news there from Gord that there's hundreds of thousands of dollars that the city has to clean up from as a result of fireworks after Halloween. But I, I'm curious, like, what is that? What is that? What are those costs? What is it for? What kind of damage are we talking about? So we're going to get more information on that coming up from Councillor Pete Fry. But in the meantime, you let us know by calling our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ. That's 331-2899. Uh, they want to ban, or Pete Fry would like to see the banning of the sale of fireworks in the city of Vancouver unless they're being used for large public events. Do you support this? Yes or no? You let us know. We put this up about 20 minutes ago, actually, uh, the hot question of the day. And right now it's 60-40. 60% of people who've said yes, they support this because fireworks are annoying. 40% of people who say no, they do not support this. Uh, they like the fireworks. They said they <laughs> we put on there, it sparks joy. But 40% of the people agree with that and say, yeah, they don't support the idea of banning them. So you tell me how you feel about this. We are going to be talking more. You know, one year ago today, Canada went where no country had really gone before, legalizing cannabis. The sky did not fall in. The world did not end. The system continues to develop and life goes on. Except on this one year anniversary, we are adding something new. The legalization of edible products, which will probably be available, start to be available sometime in December. But over the last year, have our attitudes changed when it comes to cannabis? And what about vaping? Is that becoming an increasing concern? Well, we thought on this one-year anniversary, we should take a look at what Canadian attitudes are about this. So joining us now to talk about that is Michael Rodenberg, who's the Executive Vice President of Ipsos Canada. Michael, thanks for being here. Thanks, Amy. So what kind of questions was Ipsos asking? Well, we wanted to explore relatively what the opportunity was for cannabis edibles. There's, If you follow the industry and you follow the licensed producers, there, there, there's a, a lot of hope and anticipation that edibles will grow the market uh, in, in such a way that uh, if you're an investor, Investor in the business that it'll uh, m- meet the investor expectations and demands. Cure all ills. It sounds Absolutely. like it's what they're hoping that the edibles are going to do. Absolutely. Uh, and so, so what we did is we we asked Canadians and specifically Canadian cannabis users the extent to which they are anticipating wanting to use edibles, how they felt about edibles, Mm -hmm. have they even used edibles in the past? You know, one of the interesting stats that we found is despite the fact that edibles have been illegal up until today, technically in Canada, 70% of Canadian cannabis users have actually used an edible in the past. 
And so they're comfortable with that. Absolutely. The, the other interesting thing is, and again, if you follow the space, one of the, one of the concerns that a lot of people have is whether or not you can, over, can, you can very easily overconsume an edible and potentially have a very negative experience because right. of the delayed onset. Uh, but what our, our study found is 86% of Canadian cannabis users who have tried an edible have had a very positive experience. And so there isn't a lot of credence to the concern that this could lead to, you know, very, very negative experiences. Leading up to the legalization, you know, people were worried about how this is going to go and what this is going to mean. Has, when you do the polling now, are any of those concerns still there? Is there anybody who kind of says, I don't like what's happened? Yeah, sure. There's just, there's still a segment of the population who uh, oppose the idea of legalized cannabis. Uh, it's generally in the 40 to 45% range, depending on when we do it. Uh, it has backed off a little bit since le- we legalized cannabis a year ago today. But I, I think there are, that's, that segment of the population is going to hold true to their, their, their values and morals. And they believe, I think, fundamentally that cannabis is not uh, not something that should be legal. Uh, but I do expect as time goes, goes on, on, those right. views will soften. So it sounds like, from the way you're describing, that Canadians feel fairly comfortable with this, though. Yeah, I think there's there's a growing acceptance of the use of cannabis. Uh, I think there's a people are are starting to understand that there are legitimate therapeutic and wellness effects that you can potentially use cannabis and cannabis uh, topicals and edibles for particular uh, disease indications, and there's some promising medical evidence to suggest that it helps uh, specific indications as well. And of of course, there is the recreational side of the category that everyone tends to focus on more, uh, which just is more exciting and interesting. Are there any frustrations with the system, though, because it hasn't been perfect, right? People say the legal price is still too high, availability of different types, different strains is still like on the low side of that. So are there frustrations? Absolutely. I mean, our data shows that roughly 50% of the cannabis that's consumed in Canada today is still sourced through illegal channels, uh-huh. uh, whether that be a dealer, friends, uh, or illegal medical dispensaries. Uh, and the delayed rollout in Ontario is a, has a, is a big driver of that. Uh, BC is not far, far behind in its inability to really get uh, legal retail open. So I think, you know, the industry is frustrated. I think the cannabis consumers are quite excited about the idea that they can now use legally But of course, they're also frustrated with prices and lack of availability. Uh, and so there's, you know, there's, a, there's a natural tension there. Right. Um, but I think, I think you know, no one expected it to be a perfect rollout and Health Canada has done as good a job as, as, as can be expected right. to b- both allow it but also balance the health rec- uh, uh, impacts right. on, on Canadians. But new issues have also come up, right, over the last year. For instance, did, was there any discussion in your polling that you did about vaping? Absolutely. And and I think the more recent uh, negative uh, press that we've seen in the yeah. United States of the deaths related to vaping have caused a lot of concern among uh, Canada's cannabis community. And our study showed that 64%, uh, sorry, um, 63% of Canadian cannabis users are actually quite concerned about the negative effects of vaping. Really? Uh, not which I found quite interesting because I think generally speaking, it looks and sounds like it is much better for you from a health consequence perspective. There's uh, there's less combustion and, you know, but right. notwithstanding that 
issue, you know, we asked the question around whether or not they were uh, concerned about vaping because of this negative press. But more importantly, what is it going to do to Their the habit. edibles market? Yeah. Oh. And, and our study found that this drove a lot of interest in edibles because they don't want the negative health consequences of vaping. But interestingly, and also another benefit of edibles is that uh, you can use those edibles and consume those edibles in social situations where you don't necessarily want to smoke it. Um, that's uh, that's been one of the most fascinating things about the last year watching this legalization process unfold is that vaping was something that you see a year ago we would have said oh goes with the legalization of cannabis and now here we are a year later where a lot of people saying we need to not allow people to do this yeah i i i, I think it's um i think it's an interesting comment i'm i'm not so sure there is uh like a huge appetite a for huge that appetite. Yet? yeah yeah yeah, people, but there are concerns about it, from what you said. Absolutely, there. there are concerns. Uh, but I, what what our study showed is that the the, can, the cannabis consumers, sixty four percent of the can, Canadian cannabis consumers, have been in these social situations where they want to consume cannabis, but they don't necessarily want others to smell the smoke or inhale the secondhand smoke. And so that also creates right. another usage occasion where edibles are much more accessible to the average consumer uh, and and more usable in more situations. And so I think it presents another opportunity for category growth uh, and potentially a usage occasion that that uh, and a, and a user can, who doesn't necessarily want right. to smoke it. So, did you also find out like how, how what's the incidence of monthly cannabis use? Yeah. So we um, so what we've we've been tracking month over month the consumption rates of Canadians just before legalization. Thirteen percent of Canadians were uh, monthly can- cannabis consumers, and that has slowly grown to sixteen percent in the most recent reporting period, which is June. We're coming out with more recent data in, in, in the coming weeks. Um, so. So we, yeah, we see the category definitely growing, uh, and I do expect that the, the category will continue to grow. And most importantly, there I think everyone expects that there will be a new batch of consumers who come in once legalization of and once the the edibles come on stream well, later in December. No kidding. I mean, as part of your survey here, you said ninety percent of the people that you asked said they expect to consume edibles once it's legal in Canada. Absolutely, and and what that speaks to is it creates. Uh, an, a usage occasion opportunity for cannabis users who want to consume cannabis in situations where they can't. Maybe they want to have a gummy uh, before they enter a party or when they're at a party, right. or they want to consume. I mean, I, I think there will be one day where you can consume a cannabis beverage on premise at a bar or restaurant. Right. You can't. You can't smoke in those kind of situations. Right. And you can consume an edible. That was 90% of the cannabis users yeah. that you asked there. The other one that I found interesting was that out of the cannabis users you asked, 64% of them said they have wanted to use cannabis in a social situation, but they didn't because they didn't want to impact others with smoke. Yeah. And I think that speaks to the uh, the desire to be, I guess, respectful around uh, people around you, as well as you know situations where you can't smoke, such as a bar or a restaurant or a friend's house that they don't appreciate smoking. Um, you know, not in this particular study, but in something we did earlier this year, we asked uh, non-consumers of cannabis whether or not they were interested in edibles, and 20% of Canadians said they were interested in edibles as well. So I think it's reasonable to presume that it's going to grow the category uh, as well. 
Interesting. Okay, so there's still a lot of interest in this, right? I kind of thought that as time went on, people would go, yeah, this is just something we legalized and we can move on and tra- talk about something else now. But there still seems to be so much interest in that industry. Yeah, I think, I, I think the, like I said before, is there's an opportunity to, for, from the recreational side. There's increasing right. evidence on medical and then the therapeutic and wellness. I mean, for, for crying out loud, even my mother uses a topical to ha- address her arthritis. And so, uh, you know. Okay, was that new for her the last year? Michael? No, absolutely not. She has a medical card to go buy her cannabis. So she's been CBD doing this oil. for a while. Yeah. Yeah. And so how does it, she's said, I'm going to do this. And Did she, you, were you absolute, surprised? Uh, no, not really surprised. Well, maybe the first time, but yeah. she like, insists Mom, it what's works. going on? <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. It's, you got to wonder sometimes. But. No, I find that I've, I've talked to a number of people over the age of 60 who have decided, I'm trying this, and all different versions of CBD, oil, topical cream, whatever the case may be, to give it a shot. So I certainly find a lot of openness out there on this topic. Uh, Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. That's Michael Rodenberg, Executive Vice President of Ipsos Canada. Now, do you have a story like that? We were talking about edibles coming online now in the next couple of months. Uh, By December, you should start to see some of them, those products available. Are you going to try them? Well, Surrey is in for a policing change, it sounds like, in more ways than one. We know that they are trying to transition away from the RCMP to their own police force. But in the meantime, they have the RCMP. Now, some changes on that front as well, as you've probably heard in the news. Surrey RCMP's outgoing officer in charge is Dwayne McDonald, held a press conference yesterday uh, to talk about his promotion within the BC RCMP, but he will not be working at the Surrey detachment anymore. He says his most pressing concern, gang violence. And he's warning the public of the need to stay vigilant on this. Now, he's going to be staying on at Surrey RCMP until his replacement is found. Global BC's Janet Brown asked him for his departing thoughts on all the shootings that they've had in Surrey, the most recent, of course, being the devastating one in Clayton Heights, and before that in Fraser Heights. And here's what he had to say. You know, it's a challenging situation. I know that uh, the quarterly statistics are coming out for all the municipal agencies and uh, RCMP detachments around the uh, around the Lower Mainland, and there is a spike in violence, not just in Surrey, but uh, across jurisdictions. Uh, it is a concern. It, it is the most pressing concern for me as police chief. Uh, it is unacceptable to have any shots fired or any violence in our community. Notwithstanding the fact that we are still trending downwards from the spike in violence we saw, say, in 2015, uh, it is unacceptable for me to have one uh, drive-by shooting or shooting in Surrey. Uh, I think it's important for us as a police department and for the residents to remain vigilant. When we look at the genesis of the violence in our city and across the province, it is specifically linked to the drug trade. And I think it's always a prudent reminder to our residents um, who may um, partake in illicit drugs that when you invite that into your community, which can be as simple as calling your dealer uh, to have some recreational drugs, when you invite that presence into your community, you are inviting that violence. And so I encourage all residents to take a stand against that and to assist us. Public safety is a partnership between the residents and the police. We will do our part. We, are, we have thrown all of our resources in terms of active enforcement, but also proactive and prevention programs, and we will continue to do so. It's our top priority. Are you worried an innocent person could maybe get caught up in the crossfire of the shootings involving these gangsters? Anytime you have that type of violence, that is a risk. That is a consideration that we take into place. And I think it's important to remember that the bad guys, no matter where they're from, uh, they engage in these acts indiscriminately. And their concerns uh, are directed towards 
innocent people. And so, yeah, it is a danger and it is something that we need to keep top of mind. Now, that is Dwayne McDonald. He has been uh, the officer in charge of Surrey RCMP. He, uh, in this week, announced that he's been promoted. So he's going to be moving on to kind of BC RCMP duties at E-Division headquarters in Surrey. But in the meantime, he will stay on as the officer in charge in Surrey until his replacement is found. And then you wonder, with the replacement, how long is the replacement going to be there for? Because, as we know, Surrey is in the midst of trying to transition to their own police force and away from the RCMP. He talked about some of the gang shootings there. I was thinking about the one in Clayton Heights, too, where hockey dad Paul Bennett was uh, gunned down in what is believed to be a case of mistaken identity. I think police have been pretty clear about that. His widow, uh, Darlene Bennett, has been very vocal about her concerns that, one, they're not making enough progress here. She is worried that the transition is going to impact the investigation into her husband's murder. Uh, she is hoping that they don't switch over because she wants to see it continue as it is. So she's been very vocal. Uh, what, what hasn't, what we haven't heard a lot about, what isn't as vocal, is how this process is going. We know that the provincial government appointed a transition committee. Wally Opal is the head of that committee to help make this happen, to make sure they check all the right boxes, right? Make sure they've got everything covered. Uh, But last we heard, City of Surrey had cancelled a couple of meetings and the Transition Committee was wondering what the heck was going on. So we will be checking in on that in the next couple of weeks. I'm sure once this federal election is over, everything kind of gets back to normal, we will definitely be updating you on that situation. Ah, fireworks. Yes, Halloween just around the corner. We know that also means fireworks season here in BC. And now Vancouver City Councillor says maybe it's time for us to reconsider our approach to this. Councillor Pete Fry is bringing forward a motion at Vancouver City Council next week to bring an end to consumer fireworks unless they are being used for large public events. We're going to learn more about this now. What is the reasoning behind this? And by the way, check out our hot question of the day and you'll get a chance to weigh in on this topic. But right now, let's talk to Vancouver City Councillor Pete Fry. Thank you so much for joining us. So what made you decide to do this? Like, why bring this forward now? Uh, you know, it's a commitment that I'd, I'd long made to myself uh, in the memory of my uh, former, former dog, who was a complete basket case every October, uh, to the point we couldn't take him outside, uh, because there's so many illegal fireworks going off uh, in contravention of the sort of weak permitting system that we have now. And so the entire month of October would be bangers and screechers and, and, and various explosions. And that particular dog, Elvis, just couldn't handle it. And he was a complete wreck for the entire month and, and even in the shoulders around October. Uh, said- and, of course, I've heard this from lots of dog owners, and uh, including the, the owners of uh, the dog Maggie, who was killed uh, three years ago when she was off-leash in Trout Lake Park and spooked uh, and, and, and ran off into the SkyTrain and was hut- uh, hit and killed uh, by a skytrain, and of course, there's a variety. Uh, that led me to some research, and I realized that there's there's a whole bunch of issues with fireworks in Vancouver. Like what? What kind of issues? What happens? Well, you know, uh, fire rescue tells us that it's about four hundred thousand dollars a year on average in in damage to buildings through fires and uh, and and the like. So that's not insignificant cost borne by our taxpayers. Not to mention the callouts uh, for our, our our staff, including fire rescue and police. So those those aren't insignificant. There's huge impacts on on wildlife uh, that uh, you know I've spoken pretty extensively to the SPCA about this stuff. And there's an increase in animals to shelters. There's an increase in animals being hit and killed by traffic because they're spooked and run out into 
into the road, including not just domestic animals, of course, but but all sorts of wild animals, because they just don't have the capacity to deal with with the 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 unexplained noise and the and the frequency and and and, and frankly the careless use of fireworks. Uh, and then there's the environmental impact. You know, uh, the things that we love about fireworks, the glittery, pretty colored lights and stuff, those are actually metal particles, uh, varying different types of heavy metals that are really being dissipated into our atmosphere. We know through studies that the, the particulate matter that comes off of fireworks is pretty significant. And in, in, in many instances, uh, not as, as much here, but in places uh, like, for instance, in India, where they, since they've started to really get into fireworks for Diwali, uh, there's huge respiratory impacts for, for aged populations. And, and again, you know, it's, it's, I think for most Vancouverites, it's the noise and nuisance of fireworks. And, you know, um, throughout Metro, uh, we're one of the only municipalities here in the city of Vancouver that haven't instituted a, a fireworks ban. Yeah, you mentioned the weak permitting system. So what does that involve? Somebody wanted to buy fireworks or sell fireworks in Vancouver. How do they do that? So there's pop-up shops that, that appear every year, yeah. and they're open around the week of Halloween. And basically, you can go online and, and fill out uh, an online application, and it, it's set up in such a way that you, you, you can't fail it. You can't, you have to, it allows you to keep going until you get all the multiple choice answers correct. And then you just show up with that and uh, two pieces of ID, and as long as you're 19 years old, uh, you can buy as many fireworks as you want. And so it, it, it's, it's a pretty weak system. There's no guarantee that you're setting them off. I mean, according to the letter of the law, uh, you're only supposed to let let off fireworks on private property on Halloween night. Now, uh, also according to the letter of the law, that private property needs to be uh, 10 meters by, or no, sorry, 30 meters by 30 meters space clearance. And that's mm-hmm. that's about 100 feet by 100 feet. And there's frankly not a lot of homes in the city of Vancouver that can accommodate that kind of private property, certainly not on the east side. And, uh, you know, as a result, of course, lots of people are using parks. There's yeah. lots of litter and debris left lying around and, and people don't limit their use of uh, consumer fireworks to Halloween only. Right. But I wonder if you ban them, if you say, okay, we're not going to do this anymore, will you still be able to stop everybody? Cause then, and what are you going to do about that? Well, I mean, I think it, it, it sends a signal. And like I say, a lot of other jurisdictions have banned them and uh, they've seen a decrease in the amount of callouts for fires. So, so it, it does work. Uh, it'll make it that much more difficult to get them. It'll make uh, enforcement uh, easier and 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 I want to make one distinction too that it's that it's consumer fireworks and there's uh, according to the, the fireworks association of canada there's they they reference consumer fireworks and display fireworks now display fireworks uh are are professional fireworks put on and these these could still be accessible to the public except it would be a little bit more restricted so you'd actually have to have like a real proper vetting and and actual training to set these off because we know that the majority of injuries that happen through fireworks are our, our kids improperly handling them. And so uh, across Canada, two-thirds of all the fireworks-related injuries are to children and uh, in, in British Columbia. So that's, that's across Canada. So there's, we know, and I, you know, I talked to the fire, firefighters and stuff, and the burns from fireworks are absolutely horrific. And it really doesn't take much for a kid to accidentally get burned. And I mean, I grew up here. I played with fireworks when I was a kid. And I remember a friend of ours got pretty badly burned uh, in a Roman candle war. I mean, there's goofy things that kids do and uh and even little kids playing with sparklers there's just a a lot of really painful injuries that can happen have you talked to other counselors about this like have you kind of sussed out how they might feel uh you know we we had a bit of a break over over thanksgiving so this formally hit the the table uh just yesterday 
and um, we've been pretty jammed up. A bunch of us are here today, so I, I will be kind of testing the grounds. I mean, I, I certainly know that there's, um, for those of us who have, have pets, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's certainly something that resonates. Um, I mean, fortunately, my last two dogs weren't really phased by fireworks, but I know lots of people whose whose pets are really traumatized by fireworks, and, and that's the thing. And, and the wildlife, of course. Yeah, so the motion that you're bringing forward the next week, would that be an immediate effect? Would you wait a no. year? How would this work? No, it would, it, it's really asking staff to report back into how we can implement this. And so, and, and joining with other cities across Metro, like Surrey, North Bank, Coquitlam, Port Coquitlam, Pitt Meadows, Maple Ridge, Richmond, Delta, they've all got fireworks banned. So this isn't something something crazy unique to Vancouver and, and a no-fun city thing. This is, you know, as, as I liken it, as we look at, at, at what fireworks are, um, and, and I ask myself, would we introduce fireworks today if it was just some brand new invention? And it's like, would we would we make them as accessible uh, as we as they are now? And I, I think the answer would probably be no. I like the way you brought up the no fun city thing, because, yeah, you know, that's exactly what people are going to say about this. Sure. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, I think what we have to recognize is that we're in an increasingly dense city and, and that, you know, if 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 people are using the fireworks irresponsibly, because to the letter of the law, your permit only applies to using them on Halloween. Now, I actually think that the opportunities to have, you know, these kind of celebrations on other events like Diwali um, would be appropriate as well, but in a professional capacity and not just, you know, allowing pop-up shops to sell fireworks that anybody can buy and use and set off as as they wish throughout the month or months surrounding Halloween. Right. And I think that's the issue. If we were, if we, as, as, as the citizens of Vancouver had been more responsible with with following the letter of the law, it might be less of an issue, but the reality is, is it's not. Well, that's what depending I'm... Depending on where you live, I mean, it's a it's a pretty big nuisance. Well, that's what I'm concerned about when it is enforcement, right? Like, let's say you do this, you pass this, yes, you're going to outlaw this or say you can't do this anymore. Uh, people will still find a way to do it, but I'm wondering what kind of enforcement will there be at that point? Well, and that's part of, like, asking staff to report back. Obviously, it's not kind of the, the sort of resources we want to, what you want to deploy our, our first responders to. That being said, our first responders are currently being deployed to this kind of nuisance calls right now. So fires resulting from from fireworks being uh, utilized in, in a way that is not consistent with the existing permitting, um, that would probably be the kind of thing that we would want to crack down on. And I think, but limiting the access to them in the city of Vancouver is a good start to actually mitigating um, mitigating a lot of these nuisance call-outs and the need for enforcement. All right. and, and, and the motion is really to ask staff to report back on what, what is going to be most helpful for our first responders when it comes to enforcement. Well, we'll see how people feel about this. Listen, thanks so much for your time. Yeah, my pleasure. Take care, Sammy. You too. That's Pete Fry, Vancouver City Councilor, who's going to be bringing forward a motion to Vancouver City Council next week to discuss exactly that, moving towards an end to consumer fireworks being sold in the city of Vancouver, unless they're being used for large public events. All right, today on Science with Simi, we're doing something a little bit different. We're talking about a book. And here's the thing. What would you do with your life if you knew at a young age that no matter what you did, you were going to get a very serious type of cancer relatively early in your life, possibly even in your 40s. Like, how do you think that would impact you? Pretty deeply, right? I mean, that would probably color every single thing that you did. It'd be hard to get that out of your mind. Now, imagine an entire family, generation after generation, that knew that was the case for them. It's not fiction. It's not just some crazy idea that we're making up here. It's been reality for one family here in Canada that has a unique and devastating gene in their DNA. 
This family is the family of author Amy McKay. You might have read her book, The Birth House. Her latest is a memoir and family history called Daughter of Family G, and she joins us now to talk more about this. Amy, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me on the show. Tell me about this gene that your family has. So I have a gene that predisposes me to cancer, um, several different kinds of cancer. The, um, the name of the syndrome is called Lynch syndrome. It's a genetic disorder. And the types of cancers are colorectal cancer, gastric cancer, pancreatic cancer, and for women, um, endometrial cancer and ovarian cancer. And as you said, at an earlier than average age. Right. We're talking uh, legendary in your family stories that go back 100 years of of women dying young. Yes, absolutely. And and men too. But um, the stories were passed along mostly by the women in my family, starting with my great-great-aunt Pauline. Um, who first uh, talked about it in our family um, in the late 1800s, so 1895, and documented not only in my family records, but also in scientific records. And um, she's known as the seamstress in lots of different uh, corners of the genetics field, even in papers that are written today in the 21st century. So this family has been known, your family has been known by researchers for a long time for having this unique situation. Right, yeah. And of course, back then, they didn't even, they weren't using the word gene. We didn't know how to map the DNA. Um, but she had made a confession to a pathologist at the University of Michigan that she said, I know when I'm going to die. I know that I'm going to die young. And I know exactly how this is going to happen because it's happened to so many other people in my family. And astoundingly enough, she was 23 when she made this confession to this pathologist. She had been doing some mending for him, and um, she actually was a dressmaker in Ann Arbor. And the thing was is that um, it shocked him to hear these words come out of this woman's mouth. But she herself had been mapping this, these patterns in the family, Mm -hmm. um, had been sketching out the family tree, had been recording symptoms, ages of onset, and so on, because she wanted answers. She wanted to save her family. This is the late 1800s we're talking about. Yeah. And so what is the average age, would you say, that someone in your family gets cancer? 46. And to put that in perspective, I'm 51. Amy. Yeah. Yeah, it's overwhelming. But... Um, because of all those years ago when Pauline made this confession and because my family is the longest known cancer genealogy that's been studied and, um, and documented on the planet, um, in the early 2000s, they were able to isolate the genetic mutation that causes this in my right. family. And not just in my family, but in other families as well. So this research has been important, not just for the scope of, of my family, but for others. And I'm what's called a previvor, meaning I've not had cancer. Um, but because I know this about myself, I can get yearly screenings, I can get the tests I need, and it keeps me healthy. Keeps you healthy for now, right? I know that right. in the book when I was talking about this is, the doctors even said to you, we'll do what we can, but it is inevitable at some point. Well, it's not 100%. It's So, you know, I mean, but the statistics aren't that great. It's upwards 85% that yeah. I will get colorectal cancer in my lifetime. and having 85%. Yeah, it's really off the charts. And the thing is, is that, you know, I've watched people I love. My oldest brother had colorectal cancer um, at the age of 50. But it was caught very early. Um, and he had the surgery he needed. He had the treatment that he needed. And he went on to you know, compete in triathlons. The guy is just a monster. He's amazing. amazing. That (laughs) is amazing. Yeah. How do you deal with that though every day? As you said, the average age 46, you're now 51. Yeah. That's a hard thing to live with and to kind of go about your daily life knowing and having that hanging over you. Yeah. Well, it's the reason why I wrote the memoir was because I wanted to document this kind of journey. You know, I live in this weird state that's between wellness and cancer. 
And I've been doing it now for almost 20 years. And I was one of the first people who was tested for this syndrome um, that hadn't already had cancer. And Lynch syndrome was documented even before the BRCA1 and 2 genes. So I have some experience (laughs) of trying to navigate it. It's really, um, yeah, it's practical stuff, but it's also very emotional terrain. It's difficult. What I found fascinating in the book, among so many things, is that there's members of your family, some of whom who want to get tested, obviously, and quite a few who do not. They just don't want to know. They don't want to know, and it's difficult, um, I have to say, to watch people go through that because I've also seen people who who don't want to come to terms with it, who put off the warning signs, and and they end up paying the price later. So as difficult as it is to navigate this emotional terrain, it's also a gift to know these things about myself. I know when I was diagnosed and I told my mom, which was one of the hardest things I ever had to do, uh, she said to me, she said, you know, you're the same person you were yesterday. You just know something new about yourself. And it feels like a burden today, but you're going to find that it's actually going to be a strength. And she was right. I got about halfway through the book, as I mentioned to Amy, (laughs) because I've got a lot of books going on right now, but I am definitely going to finish it. But what I was trying to kind of get ahead and read was Mm. you were talking about the struggle that you had in how to discuss this with your kids, your son in particular, when he got to a certain age, should he be, and he had a serious relationship and you thought, is it time to tell him now that he could be carrying this gene? That's a lot of honesty you have to cope with. How did you deal with that? Well, I was lucky to have had a mother who was very open and honest about cancer and about health and and illness and and so on, and not in a way that ever scared me as a child. Like I, you know, the first time I heard the word cancer, I think it was five, but she was very open. And so, um, yeah, my boys were one and eight when I was diagnosed, and so teaching them as as they grew up, never hiding it from them, but also, you know, saving the really important serious conversations for certain moments. And as my eldest became old enough to get tested, yeah, there were some very serious conversations. And as a mother, having to sit back and realize this is his choice. He'll make that choice to be mm-hmm. tested. It's not my choice to make, but wanting him desperately to do so. And then that really put into perspective when I made my mom wait a little bit for my decision to be tested, right? So, um, but That's he, always the case with parenting, though, isn't I, it? Oh, absolutely, in everything, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So no different that way. Um, but yeah, wanting him to be informed and empowered because knowledge is power, especially in this case. Um, and then, yeah, he did make that decision. He did go ahead and, and get tested. and Must have been a hard thing as a parent, too. Like, just knowing that you've got this may have come from my family, and you're going to have to deal with this your whole life. Right. There's a 50-50% chance that you pass it on to your kids. Um, And yeah, and he he is positive. Um, It's it's in the book. I mean, you know, he agreed for me to talk about it with others. Because he also feels it's important that people know about this. Yeah. One in 279 people have Lynch syndrome, but only 5% know it. Really? Yeah, yeah. So, so there may be families out there who have these kinds of stories that you had in your family, but they've just never... Made the connection yeah. or talked to their general pr- practitioners about it, um, you know, and that's the way to do it. You know, spitting into a tube for an ancestry test is not going to find these results. You have to go to your doctor if you have these patterns in your family and then see a genetic counselor and get the testing you need. I mean, what do you think the knowledge has done for you? Well, at first, it was devastating. I was afraid, and it was you know I had to work my way through it. But I, you know, these many years on, it actually freed me up. And actually, not too long after I had the diagnosis, I started realizing that I wanted to embrace joy in my life. I didn't want to wait for things because I figured whatever time I have, I need to spend doing the things that are most important. 
um, I don't know if I would have ever written my first novel, The Birth House, if it hadn't been for that diagnosis. Really? Yeah, I started the novel not too long after I got the news. So, yeah, some people are saying, like, you know, weren't you, you know, didn't you want to just sit down and drink a fifth of scotch every day? And I said, no, I, I wrote a novel. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. So that was something that you thought you may have talked yourself out of. Yeah, absolutely. If you didn't know that, listen, I've got this shot, I'm going to take it. Exactly. Yeah. Has that made you push yourself in other ways as well? Yeah, I think it's just, you know, and not to the point where I'm a workaholic or I'm, I'm pushing, you know, too hard. Actually, I'm, I'm pushing more rigorously for joy and connection and, um, and trying to spend time with the people I love and being grateful for every moment. The book jumps back and forth in some different timelines, goes back to tell Pauline's story, the seamstress's story as well. Was it cathartic to write this? Yeah, it was amazing. Um, and, the, and I had written it in these three timelines, right? So the history of before I was born, obviously Pauline's time and, and my great-grandmother, who was her sister, and my memories of having illness in my family growing up, um, and then the present. So there's a whole thread of me. So the reader's sort of over my shoulder as I'm going through the process of doing the research. And I weave the timelines together instead of placing them end to end. And what happened was I was finding these amazing moments of synchronicity between the generations, and I learned a lot. And I learned a lot about myself. So in the end, it was really worth it to have explored my family's history in that way. You must have a great relationship with your family doctor. Yes. <laughs> yeah, she's pretty incredible. Yeah, I was thinking you must see that person a lot. I do. I do. But, you know, she's great because she makes everything work like clockwork. And we know when it's time for this or that. And, and there have been some, she's been there for me when I've had some really tough choices. I had a prophylactic hysterectomy a few years ago um, to ward off the gynecological cancers that are associated with this syndrome. Um, and she was there and really supportive the whole way. So, yeah, I can't say enough about her. Well, I can't say enough about the book. So thank Thanks. you so much for writing this. Uh, it's Amy McKay. The book is called Daughter of Family G, as in the letter G. It's a memoir of cancer genes, love, and fate. It was so great. Amy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Check the book out. You will love it. A couple of important crime-related stories that we're going to be talking about in this hour. Definitely all about making sure you protect yourself and your home from break-ins and from being scammed. You've been hearing about the Vancouver Police Department warning about their scam that they're hearing more about. We'll have that coming up in about half an hour. Right now, though, let's talk about Surrey. And it's being said that this is a new low for thieves in Surrey, breaking into homes while people are still on the inside. How many times has this happened? RCMP saying there were 24 incidents like this in just in the month of September, mainly in the Guilford, Wally and Newton neighborhoods. So how does this work? What's been going on? We're joined now by Global News senior reporter Janet Brown for more on this. Hi, Janet. Hi, Simi. Uh, in the past, have not thieves broken into homes when people aren't at home? Well, now we have thieves breaking into homes in Surrey while people are at home. And this is happening as early as 7 p.m. in the evening until 7 a.m. So for the most part, people are asleep when this is happening. Yeah. But hey, let's face it, a lot of people get up in the middle of the night. Maybe they're watching TV, getting something to eat, something to drink. I mean, to me, this is a, a terrible situation uh, and maybe a disastrous situation waiting to happen. I mean, if somebody breaks into your house, you come downstairs, you find a stranger in your home, what's your first reaction? I would say 
it's often to fight back, correct? Yeah. Anyways, this is what's happening in Surrey right now. And here's how it's happening. Thieves go into a driveway. They are looking for a garage door opener and they either break into the vehicle or the vehicle is open. They grab that device. They open the garage door. Now they're inside. So they help themselves to whatever they want inside the garage, but they don't stop there. Uh, they either go into the house through an unlocked door or they find a key. And let's it. A lot of people leave an, a spare key for kids somewhere in their garage hidden. The thieves find it and away they go into the house and help themselves. Constable Richard Wright says, as I say, often the residents are asleep, but of course, sometimes they may not be. And here's more of what he has to say. This is the uh, current modus operandi that we're seeing with the, the incidents that uh, people are sleeping and that the suspects are being quite brazen and uh, taking the chance that they will uh, be caught in the act, if you will, if they disturb someone. But uh, that is the, the way that these people are acting, uh, committing their crimes right now. And we want to uh, make sure that homeowners are doing what they can to help protect their property. And if they are victim, unfortunately, in the future, then we want to have it reported to us and to make sure people are recording the serial numbers of their personal property so that they can be returned to them when recovered. RCMP must be worried that eventually, if this continues, that somebody's going to get hurt because at some point somebody's going to fight back if some, if they find a stranger in their house trying to steal their property, I would imagine. Well, to have your home broken into is a very upsetting and personal event, and we want to mitigate that possibility completely by having homeowners take responsibility for their personal property, for their home, for their family, before that happens. What we want to see homeowners do is ensure that they're keeping their garage door openers inside their residence, not in the vehicle, that they're locking their doors and windows at night, and that will make your house and your family much more secure. Does it surprise you, the, the RCMP, Richard, that people are actually breaking into homes when people are asleep? Because let's face it, there could be people still awake, still up, you know, sitting there watching TV. I mean, this is this is a disaster waiting to happen, in my opinion. As a police officer, I my business is that, unfortunately, there are people that will take advantage of other people, and that's why I'm in a job. It's unfortunate that there are these people in our neighborhood, but our property crime target team are targeting these individuals specifically, and to make sure that we minimize, if not, eradicate the potential for them to strike again. We are advising the public that they need to take the steps that I've already mentioned to secure their own residence. So that's Constable Richard Wright with Surrey RCMP. So Janet, it sounds like this was kind of focused in a couple of neighborhoods. It was, as as you said at the opening, Simi, it was Guilford, Wally and Newton in September. But in August, uh, there were several incidents, several dozen incidents, in fact, and they happened in the Cloverdale area, according to Constable Richard Wright, and also South Surrey. So it appears that they are moving around the city of Surrey. I asked him if there is an actual team doing this. Mm -hmm. He couldn't answer that. But at the end of the day, the important thing is to remember, do not leave your garage door opener in your vehicle, bring it into the house with you, and stow it away. I I remember a few years ago, there was a similar story like this, where there were a number of break-ins 
chickens into homes, uh, but it was not when people were at home, but it was because people were leaving their garage door opener in their vehicles when they were out somewhere, and thieves grabbing that, getting the papers out of the uh, glove box to find the address, and away they go Ugh. and break into the home. But this is a this is a new new situation where they are breaking into the homes knowing that people are home and inside. And this is a dangerous situation. People have to be aware of this, Simi. Yep. Not only hang on to your garage door opener and don't leave it in your vehicle, but make sure those inside doors from the garage into your house are locked and that the key for those doors are hidden away as well. All right. Good advice, Janet. Thank you. That is Janet Brown, our Global News senior reporter, talking about this problem in Surrey. Like, yeah, that's a big one. 24 incidents in Surrey alone. I think we tend to kind of take this for granted, right? Like, you may check all of your other doors and make sure they're locked before you go to bed, but do you always check the door that leads to the garage? Because you think, oh, well, no, the garage, nobody's going to get into the garage and the other door is locked, so this is fine. Uh, This is a good reminder for people to do exactly that. Lock your car doors too, right? Because a lot of this starts with an unlocked car sitting in the driveway. You know, it seems like over the last few years, people who are trying to scam you over the phone have gotten better and better at it, especially when it comes to spoofing phone numbers. Like, I think you know not to get up for for some, you know, unfamiliar number from down in the United States or something weird like that. But now it's, I feel like I'm looking at the phone and I'm looking at the number and I'm thinking, well, that's a local call. That might be somebody I know. But even then, it turns out it's still a scam. And now they've gotten even better. The latest version of this has Vancouver police actually warning the public because fraudsters have been using the VPD non-emergency number to call people and then try to scam them out of money. So let's talk more about what is going on now and how you can protect yourself. Joining us is Sergeant Aaron Road from the Vancouver Police Department. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Sammy. Thanks for having me. So what's going on? What are you hearing? So what we're seeing is a spoofing, which has been around for a while, uh, but they are now using their technology to take our police numbers and represent it on your call display. And fraudsters are pretending to be police officers. So that means that when I'm looking at the phone, is it going to say VPD non-emergency? It will show our VPD non-emergency line if that's the one you're giving. So what we're seeing is... uh, a fraudster con artist from the Canadian Revenue Agency will call, get into a dialogue letting them know they, your SIN number has been stolen. Um, you, they've created fake credit cards, a uh, large debt has been accumulated, and you're now liable. Uh, they'll start looking into uh, asking you questions. Uh, what is your local police department? And asking you for that phone number. Then a few minutes later, a additional phone call will come through with our phone number being represented. Uh, a con artist police officer will state that you should be abiding by what this other Canadian Revenue agent is telling you to do. Uh, that's how the scam is starting and people are sort of uh, falling prey to this type of uh, situation. Well, no kidding, right? Like that's one pretty complicated. They're going to a lot of effort here. And if you think you're getting a call from the Vancouver Police Department, this must be convincing to a lot of people, Sergeant. We are seeing uh, an increased number of people um, uh, calling the police to letting us let us know. We feel this is an under underrepresented uh, represented crime. Uh, many people are just hanging up and letting it go by. Uh, we are requesting that you call our uh, police department or even go online to vpd.ca and make a report of this so we know what is happening. Yeah, so you have the numbers essentially. Yes. 
what we are seeing, though, is people are hesitant to call because the number that uh, well, is yeah. part of the scam is our non-emergency line. So utilize our uh, online reporting, or even if you're feeling uh, a definite threat to yourself and you are being scammed, call 911, and we will be able to let you know that this is a scam, hang up, and we will do our investigation. I guess that begs the question, then how are people supposed to protect themselves if they think it's the police that are calling them? If they think it's the police, well, first off, we have to let people know we're trying to educate you. The Vancouver police are never going to call you from the non-emergency line uh, demanding payment for anything that's overdue. Uh, the non-emergency police line is for calling and notifying the police of an incident that's happened. We will never call you as a representative of the Canadian Revenue Service or any other organization demanding payment. So people need to educate themselves. They can also go on the Canadian Revenue Agency's website and uh, click the link for fraud. It'll give step-by-step directions on how to educate themselves. Um, There's not a lot the Vancouver Police can do in the investigation, as this is an international group of people uh, with a bit of a spiderweb effect trying to locate them. Right. Not not saying that it can't be done. It's just very difficult uh, to investigate these types of crimes. The best thing is for people to hang up and get a hold of our true representatives from the Vancouver Police uh, and notify us of each situation. Are any other jurisdictions having a, a similar problem like this? Uh, we are seeing, uh, as I've done research across the country, this isn't distinct to Vancouver. Uh, we are reaching out to let everyone know that inside of Vancouver and outside, if these scams are happening to yourself, the first thing to do is just to hang up and contact your police to notify us. Okay, so that's good advice there. So once again then, Sergeant, you just want people to know they're never going to be calling you from that number. We're not going to be calling you. It's for you to be calling us. Um, We won't be calling you from the non-emergency police line to demand payment or to work with another organization similar to the Canadian Revenue Agency. Boy, that Canada Revenue Agency one is is still going, right? Because it seems like that's been going for a long time. I don't, I would, I'm the Canada Revenue Agency. I'm not calling anybody anymore because nobody's ever going to pick up the phone. No, they're definitely having problems with that. Uh, People are skeptical for any call that's coming from the Canada Revenue Revenue Agency. And this is nothing new. We've seen this for years. It's just technology is growing and they're getting more and more complicated on trying to scam us. No kidding. All right, Sergeant, thank you so much for your time. No, I appreciate you having me. That is Sergeant Aaron Road from the Vancouver Police Department uh, letting us know about a new scam. Boy, this one takes the you know a step further to just try to confuse you and suck you in even more. So essentially, when they do get you on the line and you're saying, I don't trust you, they say, well, why don't you call your local police? Uh, so we'll get your local police to call you. What's your local police? And they say, oh, Vancouver police. They're like, all right, hold on. We'll get Vancouver police to call you. Boom, you get a number, you look at your um, call display, it says Vancouver Police Department non-emergency number, so you think that's what it is, and of course, you could see how some people would fall for that, right? Like, that's pretty, they've gone to a lot of trouble, that's pretty complicated to suck people in on that. So Vancouver Police now putting out the warning that we will never call you from that number, and they're never, ever going to ask you for money. That's just not going to happen. As he pointed out, the the non-emergency number for the Vancouver Police Department is for you to call them, 
not for them to call you. If officers have to call you, they'll call you from another line. They don't call you from the non-emergency number. So that's a very important information, okay? Don't pick up if you see Vancouver Police Department non-emergency line calling you. If it's that important, they can leave a message. That's actually become my motto for every phone call now. If it's that important, they can leave a message because I just don't know. You know, when you're in business, when you have a brand name, it's constantly challenging about keeping that name front and center with the public and out of trouble. It's one of the reasons why we pay so much attention to the Gustafson Brand Trust Index, which tells us which companies score well with the public yearly and which ones do not. And a lot of times companies falter because of poor leadership. What mistakes are made? How can companies prevent those mistakes from happening? Well, our next guest has some advice on that. It is Dr. Saul Klein, Dean and Professor at the Peter B. Gutzeson School of Business at the University of Victoria. Dr. Klein, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. How do you measure brands on the index? How do you do that? Yes, so we do an annual survey of roughly 8,000 people in Canada across the country. And we have a barrage of questions we ask them about different elements that we think make up trust. At a very broad level, trust is about the perception that the brand acts with integrity and is um, acting in, in our interest. And then we break it apart into three important components. One is a very functional-based one. We trust brands who deliver on their promises. Are they reliable? Are they delivering good quality? Are they value for money? Secondly, we trust brands based on how they treat us as consumers. Do they respond to our concerns? Do they respect our privacy? Do they fix problems when things go wrong? And then there's a third element, which, interesting enough, we're finding is becoming more and more important over time, is there's a value-based element. We trust brands based on their broader contributions to society. How well are they protecting the environment? How well are they contributing to the community? Are they treating employees well? And what we've created is, a, is an index that combines the different elements and helps us to provide some insights into what kind of behavior works to, um, to build trust. Right. And would you say that, you know, when one of those big brands falter, which often happens, because I know brands mm-hmm. go up and down on your scale, do you think mm-hmm. one of those causes could be poor leadership? Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> I think like anything, when we're talking about a, a business, ultimately, it is the leadership that matters. The leaders establish the values, the leaders set the direction, the leaders need to be authentic in, in living the values. Because trust, and, and for, for us, that becomes the key attribute. Trust is about, you know, keeping your promises and being authentic and having the ability to deliver on what you're saying. It's not simply about making promises that you never intend to keep. Right. And yet we've seen some companies like go down when they have had problems. Is it possible for those companies then to rebound provided they make the right decisions after that? It absolutely is. To some extent, it depends on, from, from our work, what caused the change? Was it something that was intentional or was it something accidental? So let me give you two examples that we've seen brands drop significantly. In one case, a couple of years ago, we saw Samsung drop um, very significantly in trust. If you remember back a couple of years ago, they had a problem with their phones exploding. or Nobody, right. I think... You know, I don't think anybody thought, well, you know, this was a cool new product feature. Let's design <laughs> combustible no. phones. Um, 
So they were able to recover quite well, not back up to where they were before, because people still have that memory. But because there wasn't any sense of malevolence or malfeasance there, consumers were able to um, recover their trust in the brand. In contrast, um, the last five years that we've been doing this study, Volkswagen has been near the bottom. And that's a case where people are saying there was a deliberate attempt to mislead, that uh, VW has been um, charged with deliberately falsifying emissions data. And that's much harder for an organization to, um, to recover from. So you know, intent matters. Right. So when you have a company that has some kind of PR crisis, but is handled better by leadership, would you say it's easier for those brands to kind of stay on top? For sure, because consumers are looking for a reassurance that this wasn't an accident. This is taken seriously. We're not trying to sweep things under the rug, but there's a problem. We want to deal with that and rebuild the relationships with customers. Right. Okay. So then I guess it's funny though, isn't it, Dr. Dr. Klein, that management doesn't really seem to always learn that lesson. They always seem to continually make those same mistakes. Yeah. And that's, I guess, why we get uh, the results where some organizations consistently perform really well and others struggle. Right. Is communication the key, do you think, like for brands to have that meaningful relationship with their customers? Well, how they communicate is clearly important, but the communication has to be authentic. Um, Too often, organizations get hung up in thinking about, well, what's the external message we want to put out without ensuring that they're able to deliver on that message? Because communications creates expectations, and if those expectations aren't delivered, the communication can actually do more harm than good. Right. I wonder, does a CEO's individual reputation matter, do you think? It, it certainly matters. And we've seen certain organizations where the, the image or the personality of the CEO is, is so dominant. One that we've been looking at recently is uh, Tesla, where Elon Musk is very much identified as right. the visionary leader. Um, to the extent that he's had some problems in terms of his personal communications, um, putting out messages that have been problematic, we think that has undermined the, the trust in the brand. And yet for a lot of companies that are founded like that, mm-hmm. ha- doing the handoff, right? Once that CEO is gone, that's kind of a make or break time, isn't it? Very much so. And you know, to the extent that the brand is so closely associated with the personality of the CEO, it makes it very hard for somebody else to step in. At the same time, what it suggests is a much clearer need for organizations to think about their transition, think about moving beyond the, the founder who built an organization that was so, to, so closely associated with them as an individual. Right. And organizations do struggle with making that transition. And yet some companies can pull it off, though. I was thinking about Microsoft. For sure. Yeah. So, again, there's, it becomes an issue of leadership, the extent to which the founder is willing to let go, the extent to which the founder has established a leadership team that can easily move on. Um, One of the challenges we often have is, particularly for organizations that are so closely linked to an individual, they don't put in place good succession plans. So when the leader does have to step down, it creates a bit of a vacuum or a void that takes time to fill. Right. So they don't necessarily want to be gone. It's not like maybe they're thinking you don't want the company to be as successful when you're not there. 
I don't think it's as much that. It's kind of like it, they built it. It's their baby. They, they don't want to let go of it. And they're afraid that whoever comes next may not do as good a job as they did. Right. But and if you're a good leader, you, if you're a good leader, you would have those plans in place, would you not? You should. Absolutely. And that's about thinking of continuity and succession planning. Even if it's only to deal with the case where something goes wrong to you as an individual. I mean, none of us are immortal. And we need to think about who's able to take over from us, who's able to step into a leadership position in the organizations at some point where the leader is unable to continue. You've also referred to this as a post-trust era. What does Mm -hmm. that mean? Well, we're seeing the erosion of trust more generally across all institutions, whether it's in government, whether it's in business, um, even universities, we've seen a decline in trust. Fortunately, and a self-serving comment, academics still are seen as, as being <laughs> fairly trustworthy in our, in our society. But the post-trust phenomenon is that erosion of trust that's really been exacerbated by the rise of social media, where trust to some extent is built on a recognition of truth and knowing what is true and what is Uh, what is false is important. What we're seeing today is that it's becoming harder and harder for many consumers to be able to determine what is truth and where is the reality. And if you look at the, the, the role of social media, they've limited the extent to which people are exposed to different types of opinion. So what happens is we get exposed to opinions that are that are the same as ours. And we tend to distrust opinions that are different from us. And I think the social media piece, by ensuring that we're only exposed to the opinions that agree with us, is doing us a little bit of a disservice by creating that sense of distrust. Right. But if you're a brand, if you're a company, then how do you, how do you navigate that social media issue? Well, one of the things that we're pointing to is also changing expectations that consumers have for the organizations they deal with, that it's not simply about delivering on the core product features. It is about one's values, and it's about demonstrating that you're playing a larger role in society. And organizations are starting to to change and reflect that broad sense of purpose. Um, We saw just a a month ago or so the Business Roundtable in the United States um, issue a statement that the purpose of business is not simply making money. Right. Um, yes, making profits is an important indicator of performance, but that's not the purpose. And to build trust with consumers, I think you need to have a, a broader sense of purpose in what you do. Right. And that's a reflection of the changing times too, right? Like they're reflecting what their customers, what their clients are saying. Very much. And the clients are expecting them to do, to do more. And, you know, we've often thought that, you know, the, the business of business is business and the only thing that organizations need to worry about is the bottom line. What we're not hearing, we're not hearing consumers say very clearly is we don't think there's a conflict between doing the right thing and making money. And we have to look at what role we're playing in, in terms of achieving and delivering on a broader ambition. So true. Dr. Klein, thank you for this talk. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. That is Dr. Saul Klein, Dean and Professor at the Peter B. Gustafson School of Business at the University of Victoria.